Hey there. Welcome to another edition of the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank. We've got quite a show for you this week. Uh, we're going to be talking about some really important stuff, but also some less important stuff um, with actor Connor Ratliff. He spent almost 20 years trying to figure out why Tom Hanks fired him from a small TV role for having, quote, dead eyes. Then after that, we're going to invite Dr. Carl Hart over to the party. He's going to talk about his new book, Drug Use for Grownups, which challenges a lot of our assumptions about the topic and even gets into some of his own habits. And then finally, we're going to catch up with legendary indie musician and activist, Ani DeFranco, which we know you're going to want to stick around for. So that is the plan. Stay right where you are because the Livewire house party gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Hey there, Luke. How's it going? Really good. Uh, We got... A couple brief moments of sunshine this week in Portland, and I'll tell you, it's like I'm like a solar panel that got recharged a little bit. Like I needed yeah. that in my neighborhood when the sun comes out down here in uh, sort of central Oregon. Uh, you see people in the neighborhood; the front doors open, and they walk out like <laughs> like wiping the <laughs> sleep out of their eyes and just people looking just start at the sun, taking off their clothing. Yeah. We don't know what this fiery orb is in the sky, but <laughs> it feels good. Uh, all right, you ready to do this radio show? Let's do it. Molly, are we recording? We're rolling. All right. Take it away, Elena. From PRX, it's Livewire. Recorded from our actual houses, welcome to the Livewire house party. This week, actor and creator of the Dead Eyes podcast, Connor Ratliff, and neuroscientist, Dr. Carl Hart with music from Ani DeFranco. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank! Uh, Thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in this week. We got a uh, great show in store for you. Of course, each week we like to ask the Livewire audience 
a listener question and get those responses. This week we asked, what's the most impactful thing anyone has ever said about you? This is because one of our guests has spent decades <laughs> thinking about what Tom Hanks said about his eyes. <laughs> 2001. So, yeah, we wanted to find out if other people have had that kind of experience. We're going to get to those answers in a moment. First, though, Elena, I wanted to ask you, what is the most impactful thing anyone has ever said about you? Well, I made the mistake of picking not one but two careers in which reviews are a part of the process. And right. It's like a very strange thing to sort of like pick up a piece of paper or read something on the internet in which someone has been paid to just describe you or describe, you know, the book that you spent the past five years writing. Yeah, because you write books and you also were an actor. Yes. So these are very reviewable things. Yeah. I mean, you can review teaching too, but um, <laughs> those are those are much milder. Although they used to have this thing where you would get a chili pepper from yes. students, but that's been... Uh, Given the kibosh, yeah. I never received one. What did someone say about you in one of these endeavors that really kind of stuck with you? The first play that I ever did that got reviewed by like a public newspaper, not like the school newspaper, mm -hmm. was when I was like 20 years old. I, I had a small part in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof that the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette reviewed. And I was described as wonderfully irritating. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God they put wonderfully in there. I guess, I mean, I was playing the the, the sister-in-law, who's this kind of really uh -huh. annoying character. So in some ways it was a compliment, but I just... Oh, it's a huge compliment. But it's also kind of like, oh, I'm really wonderful at being irritating, huh? And then that same reviewer who became my pal and who I like very much... Um, described me once as wolf-eyed, which makes me think of our guest this week. I have yeah. no idea what that means because wolves don't have brown eyes, do they? Well, the good news is you have a very successful podcast in your future in addition to this show. <laughs> wolf eyes. <laughs> oh, wolf eyes, the Elena Passarello story. I um, Well, back in 2008, uh, when there was like that, that financial crisis, oh, yeah. like a lot of people, I got laid off and I was trying to figure out how to make some money. And I heard that you could make some dough giving motivational speeches. <laughs> and I had like just enough juice because I had worked in radio, but I was behind the scenes. Oh. I wasn't the host of anything, but I was able to leverage that into getting this agent whose whole job was representing people to give motivational speeches. Oh and she told me, I got you a gig. Uh, it's with the Oregon Banking Association, <laughs> which I was excited about because it paid a lot of money, but there were a few problems. One, I had never given a speech. I knew nothing about banking. <laughs> Small problems, small problems. And because I had never actually turned in my assignment to her, which was like, what are your speeches going to be about? She just came up with an idea for me, which made no sense. It was called How to Be Unreasonable During Unreasonable Times. <laughs> so I go down to uh, where the speech is happening and I stroll in and it's this like kind of very drab conference room area. Mm. And I'm thinking, I got this nailed. Like they're going to be so relieved to have old Luke Burbank here, Mr. Charm. <laughs> and the guy who is giving his speech before me is like a super avuncular mm. banker from Atlanta uh -oh. who has great stories about banking <laughs> and he has slides oh, no. and he's charismatic. <laughs> I had no computer. The AV guy looked at me like, what are you doing? I had like, I was like, uh, it's just me. That's when you really wish you could tap dance. You know, <laughs> I give my little speech. People are, I think, trying to pretend that it's moderately interesting. I was supposed to go like an hour. I probably went like a half hour. Oh, no. <laughs> I said, okay, thanks, everyone. I get like a tepid applause. And then like a week later, I get a call from my speaking agent. She said, I have some, some good news and bad news. The good news is they are going to pay you. 
the badness, the feedback from the client described what they called a real credibility gap <laughs> with your presentation. <laughs> and I like learned there are some things you cannot charm your way out of. Yeah, I guess speaking in a drab hotel room to a bunch of bankers is one of those yeah, who things. are in the midst of a financial crisis. Oh, right, right. Oh, Maybe that's not the time for that patented Burbank charm. So I've spent the rest of my career trying to make sure I don't find myself in one of those situations again. Um, what's the Livewire audience saying uh, is some impactful things they've heard other people say about them? Oh, here's a funny one from Matt who says, my own grandmother said that I'm the rudest child she ever met. <laughs> <gasps> wow. I hope she's sort of the kind of like a, a tough but but loving grandmother. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like someone, like a, a grandmother who kind of tells it like it is, but you know, deep down she loves you. Not like um, Tony Soprano's mom. From oh, the, no. Not like Olivia. Yeah. No, don't listen to anything a woman like that says. Like first rule of Fight Club. Uh, That's right. <laughs> here's one from Daniel who says, a girl once told me that my signature animal was a seagull, quote, but like one of those seagulls that hangs out in the Walmart parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> like a seagull that's found itself way in the interior of the country. Yeah. And sometimes I'll see, I'll be like, do you know the beach is not that far and it's real right. nice? Like, what are you doing hanging out on a shopping cart near the lawn equipment? Live your life, man. As Todd Glass once said on our very radio show, the comedian Todd Glass, he said, why would a bird ever live in a bad neighborhood? <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right, one more before we get our first guest on here. Okay, how about this one from Samson? I once overheard my mom tell my aunt that I was too emotionally intelligent. Mm. It's anything your mom says about you to another person when mm -hmm. you are not supposed to be around or maybe you're not being thought of will stick in your brain for the rest of your life. It's basically why the therapy industry exists. Yes. Because of one errant comment yeah. from each mother in America. That's true. Yeah. I, my mother told me I was clumsy, and I feel like I could have been like a prima ballerina if I just hadn't been told that I was clumsy. <laughs> but uh, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> um, well, we're talking about all this stuff this week because our first guest knows a lot about somebody saying something and it having a big impact on them. Uh, he's an actor. You might have seen him on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel or uh, Search Party. Um, you know what you haven't seen him in, though, Elena? Hmm. The 2001 HBO <laughs> miniseries Band of Brothers. Why not? Because Tom Hanks fired him the day before he was supposed to start filming for having what Tom Hanks apparently called dead eyes. And almost 20 years later, uh, the coal of that rejection has been turned into a diamond of hilarity by Connor Ratliff through his podcast, Dead Eyes, uh, which looks back at the whole sordid situation. Let's welcome Connor to the Livewire House Party. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, all right, so let's uh, go back to the sort of uh, origin point for, for this podcast, which is that you were about how old? I was uh, 24, mm. I think, at the time. And, and you were living in England. And yeah. uh, this HBO series, Band of Brothers, is going to be filming in England. And you audition for this role of it's like Private Zelinsky, I think. And you book <laughs> the job. You have been hired to be in this huge production. And even better, you're going to be in an episode that is directed by Tom Hanks. Where did things start to go wrong? <laughs> Well, it was just one, for a while there, it was just one piece of good news after another. And then, uh, and then all of a sudden, 
Uh, I got a call from my agent saying that uh, you've got to get down to London immediately. It was the day before I was supposed to start filming. I got a phone call from an assistant in my agent's office telling me uh, there's been a problem. Uh, Tom Hanks has seen your audition tape, and he's having second thoughts. He thinks you have dead eyes. <laughs> and, like, what's going through your mind in, in that moment when you hear that? Um, I just I didn't know what to make of it because it was such a small role and it was a character who said very little <laughs> and it wasn't an emotional scene. So it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't a, a thing where I could really, you know, pop my eyes out and fill them with emotion, you know, right. uh, anything, any acting choice I could have made in my re-audition to emphasize my eyes would have also <laughs> been utterly disqualifying, uh, <laughs> as far as how distracting it would be in the scene. So basically, you had this role booked. You've been hired to play this character, Zelensky, and yeah. you like told your family about it, and like I told any, everybody, anybody, I told everybody, and everybody, yeah. and then every passerby. Tom Hanks is going to direct me. I have lines. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I was still paid, which some people hear that because you know the contracts were signed and everything. You know, some people hear that and they say, "Well, what are you complaining about? You got paid for it." But I would have given up the money to have the the getting the role is the harder part mm-hmm. when you're a young actor. You can right. find some money somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> there are other ways to make money. It's it's hard to get those, you know, when you're starting out to get those early credits that then, you know, sort of legitimize you. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, and and then it was, you know, it was over a year later when the the it finally started airing on HBO and and by the, when you look at the scene there's even fewer lines <laughs> like the final edit <laughs> yeah he says his name and then he says he can go get a bacon sandwich for uh Ron Livingston's character and he leaves the room and he comes back and he leaves you know, it's just it's it goes by in a blink yeah uh it's definitely not like i in one of the episodes as, as you probably heard i i uh tracked down the actor who mm-hmm. replaced me and talked to him about it. He, of course, had no idea. He had had a whole separate experience that day. What I didn't realize was as I was re-auditioning, uh, there was a room full of other actors that were basically in the on-deck circle. They were waiting to come in and replace me. This is kind of a big reveal on the podcast. Oh, by the way, we're talking to Connor Ratliff uh, about his podcast, Dead Eyes. Uh, this is the Livewire house party. Yeah, it's a big reveal in the podcast that basically they were making sure that they had someone they thought was a sufficient replacement for you before yeah. they officially <laughs> took yeah. the role away from which, you. Which totally makes sense. I'm also incredibly grateful that they went to the trouble of hiding that room full of actors from me. Mm-hmm. That was considerate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's bad enough when you're auditioning for a part that you haven't booked yet and you see the other actors who are kind of similar to you in the room. Um, that That is in itself kind of often a negative experience, especially if you're, as I am, a character actor, because often more than once I've had the experience of going to audition for like Law & Order SVU, which <laughs> I have never booked a part on, but... You're in a room when you audition for that that is also auditioning for Chicago Fire. Uh. And and multiple times I have auditioned for various uh, um, sex offenders on SVU. (laughs) And when you're in the room, you can tell who's going to read for the sex offender (laughs) and who is going to read for the firefighter. They are a different different type. 
And it's genuinely upsetting to look over and go like, oh, yeah, that guy is definitely uh, auditioning for SVU. And then realizing like, oh, he's thinking the same thing about me. <laughs> we have to take a really quick break uh, uh, here on the Live Warehouse Party. We're talking to Connor Ratliff. Uh, he has a podcast out called Dead Eyes, which is uh, really entertaining. Uh, it's about uh, his search to try to figure out why Tom Hanks fired him from Band of Brothers for having uh, what were described as dead eyes. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with much more. Stay with us. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of LiveWire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at LiveWire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use Livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to the Live Wire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, we are talking to Connor Ratliff, uh, the guy behind the Dead Eyes podcast about the time that he was fired from a uh, role on Band of Brothers by Tom Hanks because Tom Hanks thought his, his eyes were a kind of dead. Uh, one of the things that's so fun about this podcast is that it sort of expands out into a lot of other people, you know, John Hamm, Amy Mann, and Seth Rogen, 
among others, talking about their experiences with kind of rejection in showbiz. Was that always your plan for this podcast or did that just kind of develop as you got into it? No, I always knew that. And that was part of why initially it was a hard sell as an idea, because I think people thought, uh, uh, you know, I was told by some people like, you can't do more than three episodes about this. You'll run out of material. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I always knew that the story is very small and specific, but there are ways in which it can sort of spiderweb out into other areas. Um, even honestly, uh, with like in the case of Seth Rogen or Amy Mann, they weren't originally designed to to be in the first season. They both had reached out to me saying how much they liked the podcast. And it was only after, you know, when Amy Mann said, oh, I love this podcast. And I was like, we should get you on sometime without even. And that was what caused me to remember uh, yeah. <laughs> that her album had come out a month before. And so it was all I was listening to both before and after because her album is so much about uh, sort of failure in show business and rejection and all these things. And I had kind of buried that. I w- and, and with Seth Rogen, I was like, we got to figure out a way to get you on the podcast. I'll, I'll figure out some, some angle, some way to connect. And he's like, well, you know, I auditioned for Band of Brothers. I was like, oh, great. Perfect. You know, <laughs> that some of these, some of these connections happen without me even searching for them, you know? That's one of the things I just love about this podcast is that it proves that like nonfiction storytelling is magical. That if you Mm. start putting your energy toward a question about something that's real from your life or from just the lives of a bunch of people, the world will come back and deepen that for you. It's also, I have to say, a great excuse for, um, you know, I... I had had Amy Mann as a guest on one of my comedy shows at UCB a couple of years earlier, but the show gives me an excuse sometimes to have the kind of conversations that would be uncomfortable if you didn't have the the excuse of a podcast. Right. <laughs> uh, the question I have, uh, Connor, by the way, we're talking to Connor Ratliff about his podcast, Dead Eyes, where he's trying to figure out why it was that Tom Hanks fired him from the HBO show Band of Brothers for having Dead Eyes. Um, at this point, because this podcast is a real hit, it's showing up on all of these lists of best podcasts, and uh, again, a number of notable people have become fans of it and show up on the podcast. At this point, it's way better, right, that you got fired from Band of Brothers and were able to make this show? Because, I mean, Zelensky, no one's going to remember, can I get you coffee, sir, right? But this is now really sort of presenting you to a whole new group of people, right? Oh, without question. I mean, that was probably true even just when we did the pilot, even just <laughs> recording the pilot. It was so much fun uh, just putting it all together that if somebody came to me with you know a time machine and said, good news, we can go back and you can really nail that audition, I'd be like, are you crazy? But it really is so much fun just using it as a window to kind of get to the topic of mm-hmm. rejection and failure and regret. I mean, this is definitely an example of how something that I took really hard when it happened, it ultimately was a character building experience. And I wouldn't be able to do the podcast if I was seriously still harboring any uh, painful emotions about it. Comedically, the podcast starts from a position of total narcissism that I'm making everything about me. (laughs) 
But really the thing that makes it, that keeps it from being unlistenable is yeah. that it's it's comedically using narcissism as a window to like empathy mm-hmm. in that like I am as interested in your story of, uh, you know, your dead eyes story, whatever weird rejection or failure that you are either coming to terms with or already have, you know, put to bed long ago. Those stories are comforting, I think. Mm-hmm. And everybody's got one. Everybody's got one. And it's also, I should say, there's a very limited scope to what qualifies as a dead eye story. There are truly horrible things that happen mm. in show business that are criminal and wrong. And that's not that's right. not the bracket that this podcast lands no. in. <laughs> Whereas mine was like Tom Hanks didn't do anything wrong. Perhaps at some level there was some miscommunication. Mm-hmm. I don't even know because that's part of the mystery is mm-hmm. – did he say this guy's got dead eyes? I don't know about that. You know, yeah. it could have been that he said something that's got mistranslated um, along a chain of five people. Mm-hmm. And by the time it reached me, it was he thinks you have dead eyes. Um, that's part of the fun of the mystery is I would love to know if, if if eventually down the line I'm ever able to talk to Tom Hanks and he has no memory of ever having said that. On the one hand, memory is a faulty thing, but on another hand, it, it it's possible that the message that got to me was not uh, something he said. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, that's something that kind of hangs over this whole podcast is the question of is Tom Hanks going to hear about this, mm-hmm. and what is his response going to be? And a number of the people that you interview know Tom Hanks, like have his email, are friends yeah. with his wife Rita Wilson. Uh, what have you heard uh, as far as Tom Hanks's awareness of this whole thing at this point? Well, uh, nothing direct, uh, but I, I think at this point, I, I'm if I had to bet money, I'm I'm fairly certain that he's aware of it, just because the the levels of people that I'm hearing back from who have heard about it one way or the other, I'd find it. Uh, especially in a year, in a pandemic year mm-hmm. where we've all got a lot of downtime, mm-hmm. it would greatly surprise me. Let's just say if I was trying to keep this a secret from him, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't think I would have succeeded. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like my hope is that he would think it was funny and interesting and that it would spark his curiosity on some level. You have acted in lots of things since – this incident happened with the the Tom Hanks uh, firing you from Band of Brothers. And yeah. I'm wondering, have you ever found yourself while being filmed trying to not have dead eyes? Um, I'm always trying to not have dead eyes now. Uh, <laughs> no, I... I mean, does it, does, it, does it factor into your performance? Do you think about it? Does it live somewhere in your brain? Not directly. You know, when 20 years go by, I really don't feel like the same person I was back then. I would say the way that it has more affected me, it's less that I think about, oh, God, I better not have dead eyes on this. Um, <laughs> back then, getting this part meant everything to me. It was the it was the center of, you know, my accomplishments. It was defining. Like, it was like, now I'm on my way. And now when I'm, you know, I'm very grateful um, to have, like, a couple of recurring parts on different TV shows that I like. But I don't put all my eggs in that basket. And obviously, I don't want to get fired from another job that I booked. Right. <laughs> um, I, I think if that happened now, I would still be bummed about it. But I wouldn't take it as such a total uh, uh, kind of condemnation of myself as a viable performer, which is, you know, it was just 
it was too much. It was too big a thing to have to have that kind of rejection come from what felt like such a height. Mm-hmm. And I felt so small, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. like eh, it's just it was overwhelming, you know, and it's it's funny to look back at it. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I'm sorry that you had to go through all of that, but we're all the beneficiaries of this yeah. really fun podcast, Dead Eyes, uh, that Connor Ratliff has put together. Connor, thank you so much for uh, stopping by the Livewire House Party today. Oh, it was a, this was a fun party, and it was safe. It was a safe party <laughs> yeah. in 2021. Yeah, man. So responsible, and uh, I'm happy for it. All right, awesome. Thanks, Connor. That was uh, Connor Ratliff. You can check out Connor's podcast, Dead Eyes, wherever you get that kind of stuff. You're listening to the Live Wire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. As we like to do each week, we asked the Live Wire listeners a question. In honor of our conversation with Connor Ratliff about those comments from Tom Hanks changing the course of his life, we asked the audience, what's the most impactful thing anyone has ever said about you? Uh, what sort of responses did we get, Elena? How about this one from Lauren? My grandmother was convinced that I should be on Wheel of Fortune because I was, quote, so good at solving the puzzles when I watched it with her. And she'd call my mom with audition times, which was a nice vote of confidence during my awkward preteen years. Now that is, that's a grandmother that's in your corner. That's right. Versus the one who said that he was (laughs) the most rudest child. (laughs) I have a theory that people are either Wheel of Fortune people or Jeopardy people. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't think the same brain can be good at both of those games. Agree. This is based on my anecdotal experience of being very bad at Wheel of Fortune, but (laughs) mildly passable at Jeopardy. I can't do uh, Wheel of Fortune at all, Uh, especially the final. I've never gotten a final thing. Has anyone, even the contestants? (laughs) I I think I've been watching Wheel of Fortune on and off for 20 plus years. I don't think I've ever seen anyone get the final thing. It's the kind of people who are good at jumbles. You know the uh-huh. jumble in the in the newspaper? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do people still yeah. do newspaper? <laughs> sure. Well, I read Prince Valiant, <laughs> and then I do the jumble. Mary Worth. <laughs> That's right. Apartment 3G. All of the hits. <laughs> what's, what's another response from our listeners about some very formative comments about them? How about this one from Joanne? My first therapist said I used humor as a defense mechanism, and now every time I make a joke, I have to wonder what I'm actually hiding from. Thanks a lot. <laughs> On the other hand, that's pretty good feedback from the therapist, right? I mean, if if you're paying for therapy so that they will give you some insights into what you're doing. Yeah. And if there's some theory that, like, the more insight you get, the more that it was worth. Like that person probably paid $100 for that session and they've probably got thousands of dollars of self-reflection out of it. Every time they've made a joke, they've been like, wait, what am I deflecting right now? And isn't it rare that, I don't really know that much, but that a therapist would like come right out and say, this is something that you're doing that you need to work on? Yeah, it's more like, um, can you imagine a a scenario in which you may be deflecting or looking to sort of change the attention by using humor? I mean, it's all, yeah, I think... Any good therapist sounds deeply confused when you're talking to them because they don't want to be definitive about anything because they want you to arrive at the insight. Yuck. Um, <laughs> uh, you're deflecting again, Elena. Oh, I did. Um, I did. My defense mechanism. Uh, I wrote that audience card. I am Joanne. <laughs> we are all Joanne. Um, do you have one more before we get to our next guest? Here's one, a very inspiring one from Lori. Lori says, my regional manager told another manager that I could do both of their jobs. Wow. Hey, get it, Lori. (laughs) Yeah. If you're going to overhear your manager saying something about you, Mm -hmm. presumably like that you weren't supposed to overhear, 
that's pretty good, right? I'm just trying to imagine our executive producer telling our technical director that I could do both their jobs. <laughs> it's just a, just a fun thought exercise for me to try to imagine doing literally anyone else on the staff's job mm-hmm. and how bad I would be at it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can't believe I have this job. We are very fortunate to be surrounded by the <laughs> highly competent people that we are surrounded with, I'll tell you what. Bless their hey, speaking of highly competent people, uh, let's get our next guest here on the show. He is a professor of psychology at Columbia University in New York. Uh, his new book, Drug Use for Grownups, makes some pretty surprising claims um, based on his research and also his personal experience. Uh, claims that drug use for at least some people might not necessarily be such a bad thing. Also, before we get started, uh, as you might have guessed, we are going to be talking about drugs during this interview, so heads up. Let's bring him on the show, Dr. Carl Hart. Welcome to the Livewire House Party. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm so excited you could join us because you have been, uh, well, you wrote an op-ed last year that was in the New York Times that got my attention. I've heard you on a few other shows, and now you've got this new book out, Drug Use for Grownups, Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear. And it has a very, very sort of arresting moment at the beginning of the book where, and just for folks that may not know, I mean, you're a college professor, you're a doctor, you're a scientist, you're a father, and you're somebody, as you write in this book, who actively smokes heroin. Uh, I, I haven't smoked heroin. Um, I snort heroin. I, I don't smoke uh-huh. it. I'm not that good. So if you smoke it, is there a <laughs> fundamental difference? Well, uh, yeah, you smoke a drug and you, sh- or you shoot a drug, it goes to the bloodstream immediately and it gets to the brain immediately. Whereas intranasal use or oral use, it takes uh, slightly longer to get there. It's one thing to talk about drug use as, from an intellectual standpoint or a scientific standpoint and, and maybe how the war on drugs has been unsuccessful. Um, but it, it's very different to talk about your own drug use and for you using heroin on the occasion. What's that like for you, like in a professional setting? I mean, what do your colleagues say about that? Your supervisors, are you in any professional peril writing about <laughs> something like that? Well, just imagine you going to your colleagues talking about your alcohol use. I, you don't do that, right? <laughs> we don't right. We don't do that. And, and it's a private sort of affair. The same is true with any drug use. You don't go and brag about it unless you're 12 or 13. And this is the conversation we've had in the country that it's been so low level and adolescent. That's why people find it strange. And even me, the way I talk about my drug use, I have to be careful to make sure that comedians don't caricature my drug use because um, Mm. I'm an adult and I have the right to put what I choose in my body and nobody cares uh, what you put in your body until you say that you do heroin. And now all of a sudden Mm. people think of it as being some wildly strange thing when in fact it's not. When you are me, especially because I am a pharmacologist, I know about drugs, I know how to do these things safely, and I know what under what conditions um, you're more likely to have positive effects versus negative effects, and I know um, uh, what I'm seeking and how to get what I'm seeking. What are you seeking in, in those moments when you're using heroin? 
Well, heroin, is, I'm seeking something differently from something like amphetamine or cocaine. When I'm using heroin, typically, it's a moment uh, for me to reflect, think about my day, think about how to be more forgiving, how to treat people better, how to make sure I haven't harmed anyone, particularly folks who are uh, subordinate to me. Um, I want to think about my behavior in the world and figure out how to modify such that um, I am uh, the best person I can be. And I would imagine you put that information in this book very intentionally because you're sort of using your life as an example of somebody who is an adult who has a relationship with an illegal drug or illegal drugs whose life is not totally falling apart. Yeah, you know, uh, for this book, I, I, I went around the world. I was on five different continents, many countries in each. Uh, And one of the things that was very clear is that there are millions of people who use drugs and the vast majority of them are like me, except they're white, of course. Uh, But otherwise, they're like me, (laughs) middle class. uh, They're working. They're responsible. They have important roles in their lives and they enjoy these roles in their lives. And drug use is just One of the things that they do in order to relax in some cases, they set aside time to engage in this behavior, just like they set aside time to engage in uh, going to see a comedy show or a concert. Um, And so I saw all of these people in the closet, all of these people who we respect who are in the closet and they're drug users. And then I think about our caricatured view of the drug user, this poor, pathetic, irresponsible person. Uh, And it just doesn't jab with the reality. And then I thought, like, well, how do we change that? Because it's doing so much harm to those people who are identified as, quote unquote, drug users. Uh, I thought, how can we change it? Well, we have to get out of the closet. And then so people can see what the typical drug user look like. The typical drug user does not look like that caricatured view that everyone has in their head. This is the Live Wire House Party. We're talking to Dr. Carl Hart. His new book is Drug Use for Grownups. Um, what would you say to, to people, myself included, who have you know family members who've dealt with, with heroin addiction and, and, and you, you see how life-destroying it is for it, even if that's not the majority of the people that are using, it is a, a group of people uh, who think there's a reason we need to keep this stuff sort of under wraps. Not everybody can be Dr. Carl Hart and have this ability to sort of seem to keep it all together. Yeah, um, I wrote the book uh, in large part for those people because one thing I would say to them is that when you look at the evidence, the vast majority of people who use heroin are not addicted. That means that you can't blame heroin for the addiction. What happens is that people misattribute what's going on with those folks who are experiencing problems and they are lazy and then they point to heroin as the problem. When in fact, when you really investigate what's going on within those people's lives, you can see that, oh, they may have a co-occurring psychiatric illness like depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, or even a physical illness like pain or something of that nature. Or you may live in somewhere like Ohio or West Virginia where you once made a middle-class living and then GM and the rest of these factories went away and you're no longer middle-class and now you're no longer able to take care of your family and you might get into heroin use or something, some other sort of drug use. People will blame the heroin and not GM. Mm -hmm. 
And that's mm-hmm. the problem. Um, mm-hmm. So when you look at these 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 issues more deeply and more carefully, you start to see that all we have done is scapegoat heroin so we don't have to look at what's really going on. Now, what about the fallout from when people can't handle themselves and they they use a substance and it causes them to, uh, you know, endanger other people in one way or another? In, in, in your view of a, of a more rational drug policy, what do you do about those folks? It's, it's mighty American of you to ask that question because when I think about uh, people who don't have health care, people are falling apart out here and we don't care about that. But for some reason, when we have a drug involved, people want to know, like, well, how do you take care of the vulnerable? We're not taking mm-hmm. care of the vulnerable, as it is. That's one. Number two, uh, we have things in place already when people have troubles. We have various treatment programs and so forth. So we want to take care of them. If we bolster up our healthcare system, that becomes less of a concern. And mind you, there are people who have problems with their alcohol use. Nobody's mm-hmm. talking about preventing me from getting my alcohol because some other guy can't handle his alcohol. The same is true when we think about automobiles. 40,000 Americans will die this year in an automobile-related accident, as they have done for the past several decades. Nobody's talking about banning automobiles. Only when it comes to drugs, we have this sort of moralistic, unique stance, and it's inconsistent with everything else. Uh, Do you have some sort of uh, like auto signature, like one sentence defense of this when people email you? Because I feel like we're going to want to use that too when we start to hear from public radio listeners across the country because it is pretty, um, it's pretty unusual, particularly coming from your scientific discipline. The Declaration of Independence guarantees all of us life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What that essentially says is that you have the right to live your life as you see fit. So long as you don't disrupt anybody else's ability to do the same. For some reason, Americans have forfeited their rights. That's okay with Americans if they want to do that for themselves, but don't forfeit my rights. Uh, well, listen, Dr. Hart, thanks for taking the time uh, to talk to us here on the, the Livewire House Party. I have to say, it would probably be a more fun party if you were around. <laughs> Based on your general worldview, Dr. Carl Hart's professor of neuroscience and psychology uh, at Columbia University. His latest book is Drug Use for Grownups, Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear. Thanks, Dr. Hart. Thank you. Special thanks this episode to Lissa Fandler of Vancouver, Washington, and Martin Williams of Portland, Oregon. Lissa and Martin are part of the Livewire member community and generously support our show with a donation each month, which we are exceedingly thankful for because it's how we are able to do the show. So a huge thanks to Lissa and Martin. This is the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank. Right over there, that is Elena Passarello. All right, our musical guest this hour is nothing short of a musical legend and feminist icon. Her new album, Revolutionary Love, is her 22nd album released on her record label, Righteous Babe Records, which, Elena, she was like 19 when she founded that record label. Amazing. We are so excited to have her here on the house party. Ani DeFranco, welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having me. I cleaned up for the occasion, too. It looks amazing. It looks nice. I know you've had your record label for a long time. Have you always had this kind of home studio setup, even pre-pandemic? Yeah, it's been a good 15, maybe 20 years wow. I've been recording at home. Although, this new record was different. I didn't record it here. The irony, though. The irony. Yeah, right. I mean, that you could have and you didn't. <laughs> Why not? Well... I mean, I was going to do my automatic thing, which is get my band over to my house, spend a few days, track the tunes. Um, I wanted to record the record just after the lockdown started <laughs> a year ago, you know. So I was thinking, gee whiz, how am I going to make a record now? Um <laughs> And so I talked to my friend Brad Cook, who lives in Durham, North Carolina, and we were sort of flirting with each other about making a record together. So I called him up in a panic and I was like, well, how do I make a record during a pandemic? And he basically said, if you will fly to North Carolina for five days, I'll do the rest. You know, there'll be no kissing, no hugging, <laughs> masked. I'll get a bunch of masked strangers in a room together and we'll make music. And that's what we did. So it was a very unique experience. Uh, I was surprised when I was doing some research to see that you founded Righteous Babe Records when you were 19 years old. I mean, yeah. that's incredible to me. And how do you think that shaped the arc of your career that you've been basically in charge of your own albums for all these years and not, you know, at the behest of, of some label? And you must have turned down what was felt like a ton of money <laughs> in your early life to go this on your own. Yeah. Well, one will never know the extent of the money or exposure <laughs> or this or that that I turned down because such are the choices, you know, the, the path not taken. Um, so I have only myself to blame, <laughs> you know, for all the mistakes I've made. And I prefer it that way. You know, I mean, I think in a lot of ways it would have been awesome to have the team of professionals helping me translate what I do, helping me reach people with what I do, all of that. Um, but in another way, I was freer. And my records, though they might not be as polished or constructed, you know, for radio or whatever, or maximum sort of reaching the biggest audience, they are very real. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're very much like whatever trip I was on at the time, <laughs> yeah. you know? So there's a, there's a deep honesty going on, if nothing else. That feels so contemporary to me, even though it was happening with your records, you know, in the 90s. That I think music now is all moving away from the radio and folks are doing kind of... Uh, this, these giving yeah. these pictures of themselves and their framework, uh, you know. <laughs> I hope so, you know. I mean, it is kind of cool that byproduct of the pandemic, seeing the polish uh, go out of everything, even, you know, <laughs> major networks and huge shows right. and suddenly sure. people are in their bathrobes at yes. home with their phone. And yeah. it's it's getting really real all around, ain't it? Most of doing this show these days is just trying to keep children out of rooms where we or the guests are <laughs> trying to dogs. record. I mean, that's the primary challenge. Amen. By the way, this is the Live Wire House Party. You're listening uh, to our chat with Ani DeFranco. Uh, and we have to take a very quick break, but don't go anywhere because when we come back, Ani is going to play us a song, which we're very excited about. Stay with us. It's Live Wire. Live 
Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello and Ani DeFranco. Yes, the actual Ani DeFranco is here. Her new album is Revolutionary Love. Um, you're someone who was known for being very progressive and really bringing up a lot of conversations in your music that other people weren't at the time. I'm curious what it's like for you, though, to still be learning at this point in your career, you know, because I, I can see, and I'm guilty of this myself, if if one intends to be someone who really is inclusive and thinks about other people's experiences, it's also kind of mind-blowing to realize you weren't doing it right. I don't mean you specifically, but we people yeah, yeah, weren't doing yeah. it right for all these years that we thought we were doing our best. Yeah, I mean, that's what it's all about, right? Growing, listening, staying engaged with people, continuing to learn uh, more about what you don't know. Because how could you? You know your experience. I know mine. You know yours. So, uh, I mean, the only thing that scares me these days is that we sometimes don't give each other license to not know Mm -hmm. everything, to not be born into Mm -hmm. ultimate consciousness, Mm -hmm. to be on a learning journey. You know, I, I certainly, like you said, I've, I've been on one my whole life and I honestly don't know how I would have fared this journey if I had been born into the age of social media (laughs) of, you know, uh, like, I don't know how a young person who wants to do as I've done, sort of push the envelope, um, step out, um, try, like you said, you know, try to challenge society, try to speak to their own truth, to, to, to what they see. And, and that involves making mistakes. You know, when you're trying to do something different or something new, you make mistakes. And so I'm, I feel terrified for young people who want to be that agent of, you know, of change and challenging and stepping out and taking risks now, you know, in this age of gotcha and Mm -hmm. cancel culture and social media and one mistake and you're kicked off the planet. And I feel very much for the young and intrepid. (laughs) I wish them well. I hope that we you know, can come back around to this idea that it's not about being right. It's about being in it and and continuing to learn and say, oh, I know more than I did yesterday. Mm-hmm. And maybe even to say sorry for what I did or said yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this is the week <laughs> that there are a couple of new residents <laughs> in a very prominent house in Washington, D.C. Um, so it's on everybody's mind, I think. Now, uh, you've been you've been an activist for years, Ani. Does the new administration in any way change kind of tactically or strategically where you put your efforts, how you think about your activism? Oh, well, 
I mean, it's going to take the handcuffs off of so many people who are doing so much good work in this world. I fear I am succumbing to way too much hope. <laughs> I will have a long fall. <laughs> I will fall. I will cushion everyone else's blows. I will be down there bleeding soon enough, I'm sure. Yeah. I wrote on Twitter that I couldn't be more excited to be mildly annoyed at Joe Biden for the next four oh. to eight years. You know? <laughs> I mean, I was like the whole year of the campaign trail and the, you know, the Democratic field going from 58 to one. And of course, when it was beginning, I was like, I mean, I love all these people. They're, there's so much awesomeness, except for that old guy, but you know, he's, he's not going to make it. <laughs> you know? This is why you are not invited to play the inauguration, Ani DeFranco. Yeah. <laughs> they have JLo in your place. You're oh, right. dang it. That's why. Yeah. They heard. Yeah. Well, you are not going to be playing the inauguration, but you're getting to do the second best thing, which is playing a song here on the live warehouse party. Um, what song are we going to hear? Oh, gee whiz. Um, I thought I'd play you simultaneously. This is the latest single off of your your album that is coming out on January 29th, The Revolutionary Love. That is correct. Is there anything yeah. about this song that you want to tell us about its sort of origin point or anything? I mean, you know, it's just a song about living in two worlds at once, you know, your inner world where we are equal and we are free and we are realizing our potential, each and every one of us, and we're supporting each other. And then the real world that's all around us, uh, you know, so it's, <laughs> it's sort of just a song about that kind of ongoing schizophrenia, I guess. All right. This is Ani DeFranco here on the Live Warehouse Party. And the outer world is dumb 
Ani DeFranco, right here on the Livewire House Party. Her new album, Revolutionary Love, is out January 29th via her label, Righteous Babe Records. All right, before we get out of here, uh, a little preview of next week's show. Uh, we are going to talk to writer John Mualam about his latest book about the 1964 Alaska earthquake, um, which is kind of a, a real compressed version of something that we're all dealing with right now, which mm-hmm. is a total and complete change of our way of life, this very cataclysmic event, which people had to kind of figure out how to get through and mm-hmm. get past. So it's a very relevant book for right now. Uh, we're also going to talk with Nora McInerney uh, from Terrible Thanks for Asking, which is an incredible podcast, about uh, what it's like parenting during the pandemic. Uh, I, you know, every time, Elena, that I feel even 5% sorry for myself trying to deal with this, I remember that I am not trying to parent small children. Yep. Yeah. And I check my privilege on that real fast. So we're going to talk to somebody who is doing that, Nora McInerney. And then... Jeff Tweedy is going to check in from his studio in Chicago, and he's going to have his kids with him and play us a song. Of course, we've also got a listener question that we'd love to get folks' responses to. So normally this is the part of the show where we invite our marketing manager, Ariana Donneville, on, mm-hmm. Elena, to uh, make us feel bad about how unproductive we are. <laughs> She's baking some elaborate treat for uh, underprivileged children or something. This week, she is busy doing something like that. So you are going to be telling us, Elena, what the listener question is. What are we going to be asking? Next week's question is, what is the silliest way that you entertain yourself and or your children during lockdown? Mm. (laughs) There are moments where I just think if anyone saw me talking to the Roomba this way, they would have me committed. (laughs) 
<laughs> like, I mean, I feel like we're going to get a lot of answers to this because we're all kind of losing it. Oh, but yeah. Anyway, that's the that's the question for next week. Go ahead and hit us up on social media uh, with your answers uh, to that question. All right. That's going to do it for this episode of the Live Warehouse Party. A huge thanks to our guests, Connor Ratliff, Dr. Carl Hart, and Ani DeFranco. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And Ariana Donneville is our marketing manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixed this episode. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Rachel Saslow of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to the newly revamped LiveWireRadio.org website. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear LiveWire, When we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.